Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday night, so you know what that means. We are right here with you for Friends in Fiction. We have a really amazing evening ahead of us. So let's get this started. I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And this is Friends in Fiction. Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be talking with Jennifer Weiner about her newest book, The Summer Place. And we have so much to talk about with this book. And the fun continues in the Afterwards show, where we'll welcome a fan favorite at Friends in Fiction, Matteo Ascoropor, who wrote Black Buck. Oh, uh, Christy, you're muted. <laughs> first time muted. <laughs> Sorry. First, we are so grateful for your amazing response to our new behind the book partnership with our friends at Babel, which is a free app for your phone or tablet with loads of incredible book clubs to join. So I just finished hosting and got to talk to all of you um, pretty much every day over on Fable about the Hotel Nant Nantucket, which of course is Ellen Hildebrand's latest blockbuster. Um, and now it's time to announce our pick for next month. Drum roll, please. I will be hosting not only tonight, but at the Fable app as together we all read The Summer Place by our guest tonight, Jennifer Weiner. We'll Yay. dive deep. I know. I'm so excited. Um, there's so much to talk about in this book. And we're going to talk about some of it tonight. But on the app, we will dive deep into the themes, the characters, and my personal thoughts about the book. So if you haven't joined our club, full of behind-the-scenes info you won't get anywhere else. It's just $5 a month and Vibble. 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 That is a new <laughs> word. Visit fable.com. C-O, friends and fiction, the and is spelled out, backslash friends and fiction to sign up today. And you know what I love about that is that, you know, we, we get to talk to the author on this show and kind of get the author's point of view about the book, but then we get to kind of, we get to dig in and discuss it with readers on the Fable app. So it's kind of, you know, they learn about it tonight and then there's another way to go and deepen their understanding of it later. Yeah. I, I kind of like that it's a, a double dip, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so don't forget, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Jennifer's books, Mateo's books, and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. And also, if you have been watching, you know that we have been having a little section at the beginning of the show called Ask Us Anything. So if you have a question that you'd like the four of us to answer or a topic you want to talk about, we're all ears 
or eyes because you put it on the Facebook page. Just drop the questions in the comments now for future weeks because we do want to hear from you. So this week we chose a question posed by Dorothy Morgan Schwab who asks us this, what author from the past who is no longer with us would you choose to spend an evening with to discuss both writing and life? MKA, start us off. Oh, oh, oh. Me, me. <laughs> uh, um, I have to claim Nora Ephron, but can I have more than one evening? Because I don't, I think, I don't, <laughs> I don't think one evening would be enough to spend Agreed. with To have spent no. with yeah. No, I especially with that. Definitely. I agree. But I like that choice, Nora Ephron. It made me yeah. want to change my thoughts. How about you, Christy? You know, there are so many that are just like flying around in my head. So this is not going to shock anyone. But I think I'm going to have to say Betty Smith. You know, True Girls in Brooklyn is my favorite book. But I've just always been really fascinated by her. I read, um, I've been reading a lot of things about her. And um, she moved to Chapel Hill, like where I went to school and absolutely loved, like basically sight unseen. Um, and, and there's, you know, this quote from her about her, like walking on to like UNC's campus and being like, okay, I'm never leaving here again. Like, this is where I live now. And I just think that's really cool. She had a very fascinating life that goes well beyond the tree girls in Brooklyn and, um, a lot of great loves and scandal and all the good things. So I would love to talk. Well, I love you. scandal. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, it would probably be just a desire to return to 1920s Paris. Well, not return. I was never in 1920s Paris, but to go <laughs> to 1920s Paris. Well, not that you remember. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, so not that, I mean, maybe I was in a previous life. Maybe I'm older than I present on screen. The, the <laughs> filters on here are very good. Um, it, no, I, you know, it, I think Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald would be at the top of my list. Um, and, um, you know, not that I necessarily think I would think they were the nicest people in the world, but man, they'd be interesting. Right. And basically, uh, you know, when I lived in Paris, I read a movable feast by Hemingway several times. And that was his um, memoir of his time living in Paris with all those other writers. Um, so really just falling into that movie, that uh, Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris. Um, I was going to say the one with uh, Owen Wilson. Yes, yes, exactly. That would lived that my dream. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so considering the books I've written, I bet most of you can guess who I would choose, but I really would like to spend an evening or two or 10 with Joy Davidman. I mean, I spent years writing about her and researching her, the genius poet and writer and wife of C.S. Lewis, but like most wives, she was kind of minimalized and given short shrift for her influence over his very famous life and work. And I think it'd be really, you know what I think would be even more fun is to take all the people y'all picked and mine, and have one big dinner party. And then we can ask Jennifer who she is. do it. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Yeah, you know, I was sitting here looking. I have, like, some pretty versions of all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's work. And I was thinking, yeah. when I, I was, like, looking at those when Kristen was talking, and I was thinking, those, that would be quite a party, you know? That would be really fun. Because I have heard from people who were, like, children when she was alive that um, Betty Smith could really throw down, too. So we could talk about it. I was going to say, there'd probably be a lot of alcohol at that party. <laughs> yeah. And would make us laugh, and Joy would, like, her wit would... Her bomb malts would take us down. So, all right. I think we would get, we'd have to ask Nora if she'd cook for us because she's quite, she was quite an accomplished chef, I think. So we'll invite her over for dinner and tell her to cook. And Ernest will will mix up the daiquiris. We'll all be good. There we go. Good job. All right, you guys, let's welcome our guest for the evening, Jennifer Weiner. 
Jennifer is a number one New York Times bestselling author of 19 novels, including Good in Bed, Mrs. Everything, and That Summer. Her novel, In Her Shoes, was turned into a major motion picture starring Cameron Diaz, Tony Collette, and Shirley MacLaine. Her books have spent over five years on the New York Times bestseller list with more than 11 million copies in print across 36 countries. She also wrote a nonfiction collection, Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing, which was released in 2016 and was a finalist for the Penn Award for the Art of the Essay. The Washington Post said that Jennifer, quote, has made a major literary career out of writing engrossing popular novels that take women seriously. The Arts and Business Council of Greater Philadelphia also recognized Jennifer with the Anne Darnancourt Award for Artistic Excellence in 2020. Jennifer aims to use her social media platform to amplify women's voices and speak on topics including self-esteem, body positivity, and the way books by women are reviewed and consumed. She grew up in Connecticut and graduated summa cum laude with a degree in English literature from Princeton. Jennifer now lives in Philadelphia with her family. Sean, can you bring Jennifer on so we can welcome her? Hi, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. Greetings. Greetings. We are so happy you're joining us. You have been a long time favorite of our watchers and they've been requesting you for a couple of years. So oh, that's wonderful. We're wow. glad that you're here. I'm so here. Summer Place is not only our fable behind the book pick, but obviously many readers pick. So we're going to start off by asking you to tell us what the Summer Place is about in a nutshell and then our favorite part, what it's really about. Okay, so The Summer Place is the story of a family. Um, it's set in the present moment as we're all kind of turning the corner of COVID, God willing. Um, and there's a wedding approaching. We have a very young couple, sort of pandemic sweethearts that had one of these accelerated relationships where they dated for six weeks and then moved in together because they had to quarantine together. And real estate in New York City being what it is, it was just easier to go home and live with the young woman's family than it was to find two places of their own. So they've gotten engaged. They're going to get married on Cape Cod at the step-grandmother of the bride. And our main character is the stepmom, whose name is Sarah, who has been holding down the fort during COVID. And now this wedding is looming, which she thinks is a really terrible idea, but can't say anything because she's the stepmom, not the mom. And Everyone in this family has some kind of big secret that is coming to the fore as the wedding approaches. So what's it really about? What's it really about? Um, I think that it's about surviving the people we love. Um, I love it. Yeah. Surviving the people we love and also these horrible flip-flops that my husband wore all through the pandemic. I was going to ask you if those flip-flops were real. Thank you. I was like, this is too specific to not be real. Be real. Yes. yes. Okay. So just for those of you who have not read the book, um, Sarah's husband is not doing well during COVID. He is completely checked out. He is totally preoccupied. He is not paying any attention to anything that is going on around him. And we, the readers, understand it's because he's done this horrible thing that he realizes is now going to be exposed. But he's also wearing these flip-flops that he believes 
that he these orthotic flip-flops that he believes are curing his plantar fasciitis from which he <laughs> suffers horribly. And I will um, share with you that my husband has these flip-flops <laughs> and I don't know why it is or what they are made of, but they sound so flip-floppy, like the noise <laughs> that they make as they slap the hardwood floors. I wanted to kill him and I love him a lot. I love him very much. He is my second and final husband. There will be no more. But I I wanted to like burn the shoes and, and burn him and burn him on the shoes. And, you know, and I was just like, if I can't, if I can't kill him, I'm at least getting some material out of this. I mean, all oh, of I us feel something like that towards a family member. when we Of course. Stuck. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that there, there are the, you know, there are the people who will admit to loving their partners dearly but you know at some point everyone annoys you so there's the people who either you know talk honestly about that or the people who are liars like there's nobody who's <laughs> never had a moment of like oh those shoes or that shirt or that haircut or that cologne or that thing you always make or that way on. you eat the soup <laughs> yes the soup some people should not be allowed to eat soup they should not be allowed to have anything that requires a slurp Mm -mm. How about mm -mm. the people that use their spoon to scrape the bottom of the bowl? Also, no good. Friend, I have a friend who has that thing that she's super sensitive to noises, mm -hmm. and you—I mean, she'll she will put a muffler on a sock on your spoon. Should you dare <laughs> to scrape the bowl? <laughs> Oh okay, that's what it's really about. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I've had people over the years come up to me at readings and sort of like look deep into my eyes and say, I love your book so much because you say the things that I just think. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I say that? Why am I the person who says them? Why don't I just think of them too? But you know, you let their, you let your character say them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And like then I have like it. plausible deniability, right? It's yeah. like, it me. It's just a novel. Exactly. Just a novel. It's just a coincidence. It's a coincidence that my husband also has his annoying flip-flops. Yes. Well, the thing is, my husband is one of my first readers. So obviously I knew that like he was gonna realize. I mean, you know, he he can be he can be a little bit dense about some things, but he was obviously going to recognize the flip-flops. And so before I gave him the manuscript, I was like, look, I need to tell you this. Like he he knows that they bothered me. Um we'd had some conversations about it. And I was like, look, Hilarious. your flip-flops are in the book deal with it. And he did. He was, he was actually really fine about it. Um, the day the book was published on his Instagram, he published, um, a, he took a picture of the book on top of his flip-flops. Uh, <laughs> you know, there it is. I want to see a video of him walking around in them. All right, <laughs> let's get going. Go ahead. Christine. You have something so, um, so Jennifer, your editor, Lindsay Sagnant says this, we're back to the beach, but with so many secrets, so much drama, so much on the line, so much to learn and discover. And that is so true. So let's talk about where this book came from. You were very honest in your acknowledgments about how this novel grew out of both the pandemic and the stunning loss of your mother, which I feel like we all, you know, really followed along in that really heartbreaking story with you. So you write about these fiercely strong women in three generations. Can you talk to us about the origins of this novel and also how your personal life affected it? So anything that's going on with me is going to find its way into whatever I'm working on. And I think this has been true 
from my very first book when I was writing about being single and going through a breakup and sort of being in my late 20s and trying to figure out like who I was going to be in the world to when I wrote Little Earthquakes, I had just become a mother and I thought I was ready for that and I was not ready for that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, watching kids get older, redefining your identity and, and now sort of hitting that point in middle age where your kids are young adults or teenagers and they don't need you the way that they used to. Um, they still need you just in very different ways. And your parents are, are aging or in some cases they're, they're dying. And, um, you know, I, I always knew that this book was going to involve a wedding and a family and it was going to be set on Cape Cod and it was going to involve secrets. Um, and, and then my mom got sick and died and it just happened so fast. It was this like, it was nine weeks from her diagnosis to her death. Right. And I, I was not ready. I mean, like, especially because my mother's mother, my Nana, lived to be 101. Okay, oh, so that was what I was oh, thinking, wow. right? Like, I mean, and, and to be fair, my Nana was somewhat pickled in the juices of her own unpleasantness. And, you know, <laughs> she was just kind of like, she was, she was going to tell you exactly what she thought of you, you know, exactly what she wanted to say. It had been that way for more or less the last 30 years. So, but I really thought I was going to have my mom with me. And maybe even more importantly, I thought my daughters were going to have their granny Franny for much more, you know, many more summers to come. And when that didn't happen, I knew that I wanted to write about that transition, that moment where my generation goes from being a, a, somebody's daughter to being really the matriarch of the family, the person who remembers all the stories. So that was how that piece of it happened. Wow. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's such an, yeah, yeah it's like such an interesting time. And, and you're right. I mean, I think about that too. I mean, my grandmother just passed away at 95 and I just always assume I'm going to have my mom for a really long time. And I hope that's true, but you know, we do never know. And yeah. You can definitely see that in the story. Okay. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about a Midsummer Night's Dream influence? Midsummer mm-hmm. Night's Dreams. Uh-huh. Yes. Novel? Yes. So I wanted to talk about enchantment. Um, and I really sort of felt like this, this period that we'd all been through together of quarantines and everybody sort of sheltering in place and being at home. And the way the world that we went back out into felt fundamentally altered. And I love Shakespeare's stories about, you know, a bunch of people end up, you know, in a forest, on an island. There's some kind of enchantment. You know, it's very eventful. And when the fog lifts or the enchantment lifts, everything has changed. Um, so there's references, there's little Easter eggs and breadcrumbs and, and lots of, um, for people who are paying careful attention, you're going to see a lot of A Midsummer's Night's Dream in there in terms of that feeling of enchantment and that feeling of kind of otherworldly transformation. Um, but you don't have to be a Shakespeare scholar to, um, pick up on the references or enjoy the story. I think like, I I think that good books can sort of meet you at whatever level you're at. 
that. And if all you're looking for is just something sort of fast and page turning and escapist and immersive, and you want to feel like you're at the beach in Cape Cod, I hope the summer place will give you that. But if you want to think about transformation and enchantment and sort of the corporeal versus the otherworldly lands. And, you know, if you, if you want to read the book on that level, there's plenty there to hunt for. So, yeah, that's so well said. You know, I think another thing that really comes through strongly in the book is sort of this theme of, of parenting, especially mothering. Um, you know, you have Veronica and her twins, you have Sarah and Ruby, Annette and Ruby, Gabe and Rosa. So the relationships, hidden truths, hurts and love all come through so strongly. Um, the novel almost seems to ask if there's a right or a wrong way to mother. And each character answers that question with their own strengths and weaknesses. Can you talk a little bit about that? Did you go in with this theme or did it arise naturally as you were as you were plotting this book or, or working through the the motions of the book, so I'm divorced and remarried, and my husband has also my ex husband has also remarried. So my daughters have step parents in their lives. They have a stepmom, they have a stepdad, and I think a lot about that relationship and how it's sort of similar to a parental relationship, but also how it's different. Yeah. And I think about. I think one of the great themes of my work, if I can talk about that, is sort of the standards to which women hold themselves and the way that we are always made to feel like we're failing, like we're not doing well enough, like we're not. Rose. Oh, no. I was hoping that was just for me. I know. I was like, maybe I know. It's my I computer. I'm sure maybe she'll, she'll, be, she'll, be, she'll be back. She'll be back. I know that was in the middle of something deep though. I'm like, oh, no. what hope she remembers. Yeah. There's she... so many, um, without giving it away. Oh, she is. Keep, she yeah. Sorry. I no, just, it, that's, that's that was okay. great. Uh -huh. No. So, so we, we lost you when you were talking about women and, and yes. The, okay. So yeah. like just feeling like you're never being a good enough mother, you're never being a good yeah. enough wife. You're never thin enough, young enough, pretty enough, well-dressed enough. You're never balancing all of it well yes. enough. You're never doing as well <sighs> at your job and with your kids. And, you know, yeah. I, I think a lot about like all of the, um, the way that capitalism plays into that, the way that there are lots and lots of people making lots and lots of money from women feeling those insecurities. But yeah. I, I think, um, the most interesting character for me to write was Annette, who is somebody who really was never interested in becoming a mother, never wanted to be a mother, never wanted children gets pregnant, sort of lets herself be talked into this very conventional life that she knows that she's never wanted and realizes that she is miserable and that she's not doing a good job as a mother, that her daughter is not getting what she needs from her and that the most generous, most truly maternal thing that she can do is to leave, is to just be like, I'm tapping out. I know my husband is going to find somebody wonderful. My daughter will have a wonderful stepmother. And maybe at some point I will be able to give her the best of me, but I can't do that now. And I, I think that like of all of the transgressive things that women could do or say, just acknowledging, I don't want to be a mother. 
I'm not very good at this. This isn't what fulfills me is still the most transgressive, the most dangerous. And I really had an interesting time writing all of these women who are grappling with sort of questions of how do you have a big creative life, a big fulfilling creative life? And how do you combine that with motherhood, if it's even possible? And Annette offers one answer, which is basically she couldn't do it and she had to leave. Um, which it was really interesting to write about. Yeah, it's such a taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a taboo yeah. for a woman mm-hmm. to say, I can't do this. I need something else. I need something bigger. Mm-hmm. And, um, the world judges you. <laughs> well, and, and what I said is that the world makes room for men who oh, say sure. that it, it offers yeah. grace to them. You know, the guy who gets divorced and takes a job in a different state or has to move out of the country or, you know, remarries and has the second family or even the third. We make room for guys like that because we really don't have a choice. There's so many of them. I mean, we'd yeah. be like excommunicating, you know, a significant chunk of the male population if we didn't. But we judge women so much more harshly. And that was something I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. You say, I even wrote the quote down here. The world forgave them. It gave them second and third chances. Women were not offered any such grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's so many secrets in this book. (laughs) Everybody, Everybody has one. Everybody has one. Yeah. Patty mentioned recently listened to a podcast on the difference between secrets and privacy. And mm-hmm. she said somewhere there's a statistic that says we keep 14 secrets at a time. And I think it's so fascinating in this book to be able to see straight into your character's secrets mm-hmm. and their struggle with what to reveal and what to keep close. Mm-hmm. You, did you know those secrets when you were going in? I knew some of them. Um, I I knew Eli's secret, which is a pretty big one, um, that, that basically this young man, his daughter has brought home, he realizes there's a closer connection than he would prefer, um, which is where I will leave it for people who haven't read The Summer Place yet. Um, so I knew that was what was going on with him. Um, and with Veronica, um, I I had some sense of like, I I knew that she was somebody who had had a creative life and stepped away from it. And then I had to sort of figure out why that was. And um, that was sort of a secret that I came to as I was working on the book. So I I would say some of the secrets I absolutely knew ahead of time and some of them I did not. Yeah. You know, um, let's move on to setting because in a lot of ways, I think this book feels like a love letter to Cape Cod. And I know that you, you have a place there, right? I did. Um, I bought it. So after In Her Shoes became a movie, I sort of had like my chunk of movie money to play with. <laughs> and I bought a house in Cape Cod because that was where I'd gone to the beach as a kid. And it was my mom, Fran's favorite place in the world. And I had just had my older daughter, Lucy. And so I had, and my mom was a teacher, so she had her summers off. And I had this idea that we would have these like idyllic summers at the beach that my mom would get to spend time with her grandchildren. Because when I was growing up, 
we lived in Connecticut. My whole extended family lived in Michigan. And so I only ever saw my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, like maybe once or twice a year. Um, and I wanted my kids to have a different experience. I wanted them to really know their grandmother. And so for 18 years, I had a place in Cape Cod. I spent every summer with my mom and with her partner, Claire. Oh, yeah. Nice. And, and then after my mom died, um, we had her memorial service on Cape Cod on the beach. We scattered her ashes and everything. And it was what I found was um, a couple of things. Like one was just like my my older daughter, who was a newborn when I bought my first home in Cape Cod, is in college now. My other daughter, my younger daughter, Phoebe, is starting high school. So she has her friends and she's on a swim team. She has like her own ideas about what she wants to do with the summertime. And every, every corner I turned in the house, I felt like I could see my mom, like out of the corner of my eye. Like I could see where she would sit and do the crossword puzzle in the New York Times. And I saw where she would read her books at night with her dog curled up next to her. And it, it felt like the house was haunted in a way that I sort of write about in the summer place where a, a person who lives a life somewhere can actually become a part of the house yeah. and a part of the house's voice. But like, yeah. for me, it was like, yeah. I don't think I can be here anymore. Like, I think that it's, it's time yeah. to sort of let another family enjoy this beautiful home and this beautiful place. And so I'll always come back. It's just, I think now I'm going to be a renter for a little while, but you know, that was the beach that I went to as a kid. And that was the place that my mom spent so many summers with my daughters. And so that was, and you're right. It's, this book is very much a love letter to Cape Cod and to, I think, mothers and granddaughters everywhere. And that relationship, which is so special. And in many ways, a lot less complicated than a mother daughter relationship yeah. because I think grannies get the good stuff, right? Like oh, they, we do. Get the, mm-hmm, we do. they get the fun and then they can just like hand the baby or the teenager <laughs> back and be like, and okay. close the bedroom door. Yes. Like, and you're up mom. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, um, writing about Veronica and Ruby, Ruby is Veronica's step-granddaughter, but to her, I mean, that is that is as valid and real a relationship as anything. Huh. And it's it's such an enriching piece of both of their lives where Veronica gets this young girl in her life and Ruby gets a grandmother. Yeah, yeah. Now you differentiate you differentiate in the book. Um, you're so specific about this setting. You differentiate between the pond people and the newcomers. <laughs> Mm -hmm. How did those two groups influence the novel and the setting? So I'm always interested in like the history of Jewish people, like wherever, wherever Jews are found, like how they got there. And my mom's partner, Claire, had spent many years of her life going to Cape Cod But she went to Hyannis because there was one like beach in Hyannis that like one beach club that allowed Jews. 
a lot of them a lot of them didn't and then wellfleet on the outer cape became a very welcoming committee it was the host of the american psychoanalytic conference i think it still is like every summer like everybody shrinks descend on wellfleet <laughs> the entire month of august like the joke is there's if you're a having movie a movie in there jennifer right so judith rothner wrote a book judith rothner in the 70s wrote a novel called august and it's set in wellfleet and it's just basically a story of all the shrinks because if, if <laughs> you're in, if you're in crisis and your therapist is away, like chances are, like drive to Wellfleet and you'll either find your person or someone <laughs> maybe better. Oh Wait, my God, that that's movie, funny. What about what? What are we going to do about Bob? Or, what about Bob? Yeah. What about Bob when he goes mm -hmm. looking for his therapist? Uh huh. Uh huh. But um, so Wellfleet became, you know, the Outer Cape was was a lot more welcoming than other places in Cape Cod were. Um, you know, which is sort of the history of like every beach community in yeah. America is sort of, you know, they're, whether you're talking about the Hamptons or, you know, Cape Cod, Nantucket, um, any of those places, it's like, there's always sort of some place that's either they're not admitting blacks, they're not admitting Jews, they're not admitting Catholics, you know, and it's just, yeah. um, so yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in those distinctions, whether it's about religion, race, money, privilege, whatever the status and the signifier is, I'm always wanting to kind of delineate those in groups and out groups and how they're interacting with each other. Yeah. It's such an interesting perspective. Well, um, speaking of interesting perspectives, you have your character Veronica say this, attempting to change the kind of voice in which you wrote or the subjects that interested you, she finally decided was like trying to change your blood type. Instead of trying to turn herself into the kind of writer she would never be, she had decided to write in her own voice and tell the story that kept talking to her, urging her on, the one that made her both a writer and a reader, which like chills for, you know, all of us, because yeah. that moment is such a big moment when you are mm -hmm. a writer. So we sort of had the feeling that this was more than your characters. <laughs> um, and yeah. you are kind of an expert on finding your own voice. So can you mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about finding your voice and how that happened for you? Well, I, I think that a lot of writers go through phases of imitation or sort of aspirational mimicry. Um, where you're trying very hard to sound like somebody you admire or the kind of writer you think is going to get respect or prizes or accolades mm. or lots of readers or whatever it's going to be. Um, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's a necessary process um, where that's how you're figuring out what your own voice is, is you're sort of trying other people's voices on almost like costumes, but I, I really do believe that every writer has subjects that speak to her, has a style that feels natural and specific and not like anybody else's. And I don't think we want a world where everybody writes like Philip Roth or everybody <laughs> writes like Kurt Vonnegut or whoever, mm. you know, yeah. whoever I tried to imitate in college back in the day. Um, but, you know, it's it's a process and it takes time um, to find that voice. And I think like, you know, I, I'm the oldest of four siblings and I grew up 
telling stories, like sitting around the dinner table, telling, you know, what happened during your day? Where did you go? What did you do? Who do you see? Who did you see? What did you learn in school today? And the deal was like, you had to be interesting. Like you had to have a hook. You had to, have, your story had to like, you know, beginning, middle, end, polish. <laughs> you were out. Out. Yeah, exactly. There were there were three other, there were three other kids waiting yeah. in the wings. So like, if yeah. you were not in, if, if you weren't up to snuff, like mom and dad were moving on. Um, but I I think that that's really good practice. It's just like telling stories, learning what you care about, learning how you sound, and and knowing it's not going to be like anybody else. Um, you know, because I. I talk about this all of the time, especially when certain critics get on their high horses about popular fiction and, you know, oh, it's just, it's, it's, you Ugh. know, it, it's mind numbing. It's, it's yeah. brain candy. It's whatever it is. And I'm like, you know, easy reading is not easy writing. And if this stuff were as effortless to produce as it is to consume, Every single literary <laughs> author in America would have a yeah. pseudonym and would be writing a book every summer and selling a million copies. It's yeah. not easy. It isn't. No. That's so true. Sure. You're absolutely right. You make well, it look easy. Though, so. yeah, well, yeah, that's, exactly. you know, I, I think people who are good at it, as all of you guys are, you know, but I'm sure every single one of us can attest, like, we are not turning in a first draft and publishing that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Right? Like there's <laughs> editing, there's revisions, there's first readers, second readers, third readers, first draft, yeah. second draft, third draft. Like easy reading is hard work. Absolutely. Well, you know, which yeah. I think is why it's so doubly insulting when people are so dismissive of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're like, it's this way intentionally, not because I couldn't make it a different way. Of course this not. This is what I want it to be. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, when people, yeah. When people talk about guilty pleasures and fluff, I just want to hit them with my box of Brock's candies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> box of Do you Brock's have a box of candies? That is so specific. That's, that sounds delicious. Wait, where I'm doing keto it? right now. I need chocolate, okay? Oh my God, that's so specific. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'll God. expect some chocolate next time I see you. My goodness. Yeah, <laughs> Jennifer, you mentioned a minute ago hooks, needing to have a hook. Um, and I, to me, the prologue of your book is has a, a definite hook because it mm -hmm. has us hearing from the point of view of a house. Yes. Um, the walls can literally talk. I, mm -hmm. I put, What a fantastic idea. Can you tell us how you came to do that and how hard it was to get into the quote unquote mind of the house? So I remember reading someplace that sound works because of vibrations, right? There are molecular, there are particles that are vibrating on a molecular level, and that's what you're actually hearing. And that every conversation that we've ever had inside the walls of a house is still happening. Those particles are continuing to vibrate, not at a level that we can hear them anymore, so cool. but it's still happening. And, and as that. soon as I read that, I was just like, I know I have to use this somewhere. Yes. And so here's this house that has contained three generations of this family, knows all of their secrets, has literally contained every conversation that's ever happened inside of it. And, uh, you know, from there, it was a really easy jump to imagine, well, of course, this place is going to have some opinions about these yeah, people I love it. and what should happen <laughs> and who should end up with who. 
That's fantastic. That was so great. Yeah. yeah. Talk about yeah. enchantment, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's almost like an enchanted house. So away from the house, you have been traveling all, I have been watching you all over the country so for cool. book tour. I mean, I've been watching you on Instagram, not like. I've <laughs> <laughs> been following you for, you didn't see me. So you've been traveling all over the country for book tour on a bicycle. Mm-hmm. So I read in an interview in our newsletter. So those of you who don't get the newsletter, there's a, a great interview with, with Jennifer that your next book might even include a bike trek, mm-hmm. but through rain and heat and cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have been to all your events this way, sometimes riding great, great distances. So talk to us about that. I've always loved biking and I did it a lot before I got married. And I rode with the Bicycle Club of Philadelphia and I would go out for like 20 or 30 or 40 mile rides or 50 or 60 mile rides on the weekends. Then I had children and I discovered that leaving the house for four or five or six hours at a time (laughs) is incompatible with mothering young children. So what happened was the pandemic happened, quarantine happened, every gym and yoga studio in the city was closed. I was like losing my mind because I exercise like it's one of the things I do to kind of, you know, stay sane. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And the answer was rejoin the bike club and start riding my bike again. So I had started doing that, um, you know, even before my, my mom died. And then after that happened, it was really one of the things that was keeping me sane. And so I got the idea of sort of a young woman who's, at this sort of crossroads, to use a total cliche, um, in her life. And she's in this relationship that maybe is not the right relationship, but the guy is such a great guy and he's so nice and he loves her and what should she do? And she decides to go on a bike trip and she meets all of these other people. There's a mother and a daughter. There's a family of four. There's these four senior citizens who all ride their bikes together and call themselves the spoken four, the spoken four little joke there. Um, love that. And that's awesome. Yes. But I, you know, it's the idea of sort of a transformational journey, which I was really, really interested in even before all of the Supreme Court decisions of the recent weeks and months. And after all of that happened, it was the idea that Riding a bike is a feminist act. You know, I I found this wonderful quote by Susan B. Anthony that talked about like a woman on a bicycle is like the most free and liberated version of herself because she can get from A to B to C all on her own. She doesn't need a train. She doesn't need a horse and she doesn't need a man. And I I love that idea. And so I love the idea of like this trip, you know, Um, everybody starts off one place, everybody ends up someplace else, but it really transforms the riders, especially the women who are on this trip um, in a way that I hope is going to feel really interesting and fun. And it's going to be very entertaining to spend time with these people, but I'm, I'm really hoping it's also going to feel especially relevant at this moment we're all in right now. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Jennifer, you know, we love a writing tip. We tell people it's for our listeners and our viewers. It's really for us. <laughs> share with us. Well, I actually read this somewhere and uh, I don't know, it, it could be from somebody on in this group, but somebody <laughs> talked about parking on the downhill slope 
And what that means is instead of stopping for the day at the end of a sentence or the end of a paragraph or the end of a chapter, you leave off right in the middle while you still have some momentum. So when you pick up the next day, it's like, oh, here I am and I'm moving. So that's something that I've tried to start doing myself is just um, not not finishing for the night at what feels like a natural stopping place, but almost like an unnatural stopping place so I can pick up the next day. Um, But honestly, the most important thing that I personally can tell you, and, and this is something I started doing when my daughters were little, is get the help that you need. Like I was one of these women who was just like, oh, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to be a full-time mother. And then I'm going to write while she's napping. Ha ha ha. Because yeah. <laughs> that always I, works. I, I mean, that while always she's works. napping. Yeah. I was, I was so stupid. I was yeah. so naive. But We've all been I, there. Uh, yeah, I know. So you get a sitter, get, get your husband, yeah. get your partner, get your mom, get your friend, get, get some help in there. And then put as many sets of doors between yourself and your children. If you're going to be writing at home, like I started writing in my closet because that way my kids would have to come through my bedroom door and my closet door. So they would have to really, really want me. So, you know, just get, get some doors. I like that. I feel like that's like a, that, I feel like that's a tip I can't use anymore, but wish somebody had told me. Well, Yeah. Maybe it'll help someone. I'm sorry. I was exactly. <laughs> I know, but you, but we admitted it's, it's for us. But mm-hmm. the first one, the downhill slope, that is. That's like, a good one. It's helped me. Good one. And sometimes I remember that and I think I'm so excited about this. I should stop now. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great idea. All right, Jennifer, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for just a few more minutes. Mm-hmm. We have more to talk about, but first a couple quick reminders out there. Just a quick reminder about our Writer's Block podcast. We will always post links under announcements each time a new one drops, which is every Friday. And on the last episode, Ron talked to Christina Geist about storytelling through picture books. This week, Ron and Patty will talk to Laura McCowan, author of the memoir, We Are the Luckiest, which is also something Patty says. So it was so appropriate that you that you interviewed her. Yeah. Laura has her own podcast called Tell Me Something True, and she sure did that in this conversation. <laughs> Cool. So the Friends in Fiction Official Book Club um, is having a blast. Did you know we talk about them every week? So it's a separate group from us. It is run by Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner. They are 13,000 strong, you guys. They have 13,000 members. So Brenda and Lisa, otherwise known as PB&J, choose the books. They host the authors every month for a monthly chat. Um, They have happy hours with our Writer's Block podcast host, Ron Blanc. They keep everyone in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. It's just a fun kind of companion to Friends in Fiction, and we really encourage you to join them. So this past Monday, they had a lot of fun um, with Emily Henry discussing book love. And get a great conversation with her. And then up next on August 15th, they'll have the lovely Sally Hepworth on to discuss The Younger Wife. So make sure you join the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club if you haven't done so already. Now, before we ask Jennifer one more question, don't forget that we have the awesome Mateo Ascaropor on the Afterwards show. And don't forget that we are nearing the end of our spring and summer season. Hasn't it been like crazy yes. amazing? This season has just been, I couldn't have even imagined it. And we only have one more show this season with Jamie Ford and Jason Mott. 
And yeah, after well. that, we will take a two-week summer break to prepare for an astounding fall season. Wait until you see what we have in store. So Jennifer, one last mm -hmm. question for you. It's um, one mm -hmm. of our favorites. We love asking our guests. What were the values in your family around reading and writing when you were growing up? Ah, uh, wow. Um, I grew up in a house full of books. And the deal was any child could read any book as long as he or she could explain what that book was about when mom or dad came by to ask. And so, oh, great yes. rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember my, my reading career getting off to an early start with my father's medical school textbooks because there were <laughs> naked people in them. Um, you know, and, and, and then moving on to the bell jar, which I was like seven or eight, probably should not have picked that one up. And I remember my mother coming by and saying like, Jenny, what is that book about? And I said, oh, mom, it is by this very sad lady named Saliva Plath. So, yeah, but you know, saliva, I, I saliva. It. Yes, I'll I, never see her name the same again. And you probably won't. But you know, I I tried to carry that on. Um, you know, I have also raised my children in a house full of books. That's great. Uh, highly recommended. Yeah. That's Jennifer, awesome. thank you so much for joining us. What a delight. And the book was amazing. And people can find out even more about it um, on our Behind the Book Fable app. And thanks for talking about the behind the scenes secrets and your husband's flip-flops. <laughs> oh, women, women, so women not being forgiven. It's just, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for yeah, joining awesome. us. Awesome. Thank you guys. Have thank a wonderful night. I'm going to go um, put out I'm sure something's on fire by now. So I'm going to say <laughs> goodbye. Yeah. Have a great Bye. night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Jennifer. All right, y'all. That was so great. You can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, for our last show this season, as we welcome the amazing Jason Mott of the much-talked-about National Book Award-winning novel, Hell of a Book. And Jane, I'm not calling it that. That's its title. And Jamie Ford to introduce us to his much anticipated new novel, The Many Daughters of Afang Moy. And be sure to stay for our afterward show, and we'll see you in a minute. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the after show. Oh my gosh, so interesting. Yeah. And Kristen, you spent summers in Cape Cod. Couldn't you just? Yeah, feel you, it? you and I both did. I know. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it always, um, so enjoyable to read about a place where you have such fond memories because it really if the, if the author does it right which she has um it really takes you back yeah 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 That's i feel really like we've had another 50 questions for her yeah i know so much to say yeah i know it's never long enough but we have more to talk about because we're going to welcome our friend mateo Ascarapur in about one minute so excited. Mateo is the New York Times bestselling author of Black Buck. He was named as one of Entertainment Weekly's 10 rising stars to make waves in 2021. And he was a 2018 Rhode Island Writers Colony writer in residence. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, and more. His debut novel, Black Buck, was a Read with Jenna book club pick and an instant New York Times bestseller. Shonda Land called it a biting and brilliant novel. Mm. 
Through his work, Mateo aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement, no matter the obstacle. He lives in Brooklyn. Sean, can you bring on Mateo? Hello. Hi. What's up, friends? How are you? I know it's been a few months. Patty, you're a regular Vanna White. Wow. This is, uh, this is amazing. I hear you doing the intros. I was backstage. I got to catch uh, the rest of Jennifer's amazing interview. This is so cool. We are so happy to have you. We've been trying for a while. So we all met you at the Savannah Book Festival and had so much freaking fun. I wish it was next weekend yeah. again. Yeah. And you had groupies <laughs> everywhere. Including <laughs> us. Us being included. Including <laughs> us. Okay. Including us. So readers are swooning over this book and you. For anyone who possibly doesn't know, can you tell our members what Black Buck is about? And then our favorite question, what is it really about? Whoa. Oh, I like that <laughs> bonus one. Yeah. Um, hello, viewers. Happy to be here. So Black Buck is about a young man named Darren. He's living in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. He has his loving mother, his caring girlfriend, his supportive best friend, his neighborhood, and his neighborhood has him. Now, Darren is also working at a place that I think some of us have heard of called Starbucks in Midtown <laughs> Manhattan. And one day, this suave, good-looking CEO comes in. And he says, give me my regular. But for some reason, Darren says no, and he sells him on another drink. This man, impressed, invites Darren all the way up to the 36th floor of the same building where his office is located. And he extends an offer for Darren to join his elite startup sales team. Darren reluctantly agrees, and he soon finds out he's not the only black salesman there. He's the only black person in the whole company. So he goes through hell and back to make it to the top. Once he's there, he has power, status, money. But he says, hold up, I don't want to be the token black guy. So he hatches a plan to help other young people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams, redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. That's a little bit. What is it really about? It is about chasing a very Western version of success and mm. the consequences that can ensue when you are trying to live someone else's truth. Um, the possibilities of losing yourself in order to gain what others tell you is the world or, or living into the version of who they want you to be. It is about mistakes, hopefully also about redemption, power, and hopefully what readers take away um, is at least a basic knowledge and, and feeling empowered to advocate for themselves and those that they love, even if they're not going to walk into a, a workplace and try to be you know, a superstar salesperson. Dang, Mateo, you just nailed that. That was amazing. Don't sound so surprised, Patty. No, I'm, I'm not surprised, but like usually when we say what it's really about, we get something, you know, really that you wouldn't get in, like give us the nutshell. But yeah. that gave me chills, man. Wow. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So now, Mateo, you got to tell us about the origins of this story. I heard that the idea that you, that this idea came to you after, in your words, you hit creative rock bottom in 2018. Now, this novel is the opposite of a creative rock bottom. <laughs> so please tell us how you made that happen. Yeah, well, you know, you got to hit the bottom to bounce back up if you do bounce yeah. back. Um, I had written two novels beforehand uh, that didn't go anywhere, didn't get me an agent, no book deal. I don't have a formal writing background, no MFA or anything like that. I was a guy at a startup 
who became disillusioned with the world that he was in. And when I began to wake up, I looked to things that I'd always loved as a child or even as a young adult, writing being one of them. So I began writing essays and articles. And then in 2016, May 21st, I'll never forget it, I began writing fiction. Again, first book, didn't go anywhere, had a lot of energy, wasn't really cohesive. Some agents looked at it. And one agent said, Mateo, you have a voice, but you need to work on plot and structure. So I did this really thorough scientific way of learning plot and structure. And I Googled plot and structure. (laughs) And then a book came up called Plot and Structure by a man named James Scott Bell. I used that book to better myself as a writer, to learn more about plot and structure, yes, but also about the mindset of a writer and getting out of your own way. With this knowledge now and more knowledge about the industry, I rewrote the first novel. I plotted it out from beginning to end, but that novel was lacking vigor. It was lacking the energy of the first. Now, November 2017, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm back in my parents' house. I have old friends being like, you tried it. Come back to the world of sales and startups where you thrived, where you were someone. But it was then that I said, doesn't matter whether it takes five months or five years, I'm going to do this. And after reading Stephen King's On Writing, the idea for Black Buck popped into my mind. The intersection of things that were so close to me, but I had avoided uh, reckoning with maybe because I wasn't ready or I didn't think I was good enough to yet, namely sales, race, and startups. So the idea for Black Book was born. I began writing it in 2018. And uh, the number one question you know, that people ask is, how much of it is real? And I used to troll people by saying 32.5%, 36.8%. And then the guy from NPR said, Mateo, I've heard your other interviews. Don't lie to me. Um, <laughs> the, the fact is, is that I am drawing from some of my personal experience, but at the end of the day, It is a novel. It is fiction. And um, everything that the characters feel, I have experienced myself and I had to go through my own emotional sphere to imbue them with those feelings. Yeah, Mm. that's amazing. Well, I also think this book is so much about reinvention. You know, Darren reinvents himself as Buck so that he won't be kind of, you know, crushed and um, that was such a, I think we all, you know, go through these periods in our lives where we're reinventing ourselves as, as humans or as writers, or, you know, it sounds like something that you definitely went through in the process of writing this novel. So can you talk to us about the theme of reinvention in this novel, but also about, you know, what have you had to go through in your own life? Like how have you had to reinvent yourself to get where you are today? Wow. Um, It's funny because this is related to Savannah, where we all met and uh, part of the discussion that I had. It's Christy. It's crazy that you mentioned that because I've given talks called The Art of Reinvention. As it relates to Black Black Buck and my own life. Um, Something I said in Savannah is that I believe in second acts, third Mm. acts, and however many acts someone can muster in their life. I don't think anyone is ever too old or too far gone to try to reinvent themselves. In fact, some of the people whose careers I revere most have reinvented themselves time and time again. In terms of this book, Darren, when he's thrust into this startup called Someone, S-U-M-W-U-N, for those who um, haven't read it on the page yet, he is reinventing himself into this character of Buck so that he does not succumb to (laughs) the at times sadistic nature of other people in this workplace that's looking to weaponize his blackness against him to harm him and bring him down to make him feel as though he's less than. Something that 
many of us can relate to, regardless of your background, um, based on you know gender expression, sexual orientation, religion, and so forth, where you have been the only one or have been made to feel as though you don't belong for some reason. So he reinvents himself. He bends to the will of others so that he doesn't break, um, which in some ways turns the novel into a cautionary tale. But without ruining the ending, I'm hoping that some readers also find that he bends in more noble directions to reinvent himself yet again on the path of redemption. In my own life, you know, talking about how much of this book borrows from from my own reality, I lost myself as well in some ways when I was working in the world of sales and startups. I was young. I had a lot of power. I was making more money than ever before. And I got caught up in this very (laughs) colonial manifest destiny of we are the pioneers. We are expanding and we are going to change the world by making a more ergonomic chair. No, you're not. But that is what I fell prey to, right? That we see time and time again. So I had to, I had to reinvent myself in ways when I left that world. Um, and even before I could be the writer that I meant to be, I had to reckon with who I was and who I wanted to be. And I'll be honest, I didn't do it. I didn't do it alone. My family was there for me. My close friends were there for me, and uh, I'm just indebted to them. That's awesome. So, Mateo, the opening of the book is an author's note, but it's not from you. I love that. That's just, right. I, I think that is something that, like, to anyone out there, that'll make them want to pick it up. But can you talk a little bit about the structure of the novel and how it came to you or how you came to it? Yes. And see, <laughs> a writer would say that, Kristen, how you came to it. It's like in conversations with people who don't do what we do, um, it's sometimes hard to answer questions like the character just told me this is what they were doing. Yeah. You know, I don't want to hear that. Um, And not to say that we're in some privileged position that other people can't get to, but it makes it easier to explain the ups and downs and the machinations of this all to uh, people that do it as well and do it so well as all of you. So in terms of the author's note, yeah, I remember these dates clearly January 8th, uh, 2018. It hit me. It just, I don't even write at night, but it hit me at night. I knew that I wanted to write this book. Remember, I told you the idea popped in my head around the end of 2017, but I actually didn't begin writing until that night when the voice of Darren spoke to me and spoke through me. And this author's note was just me inhabiting this character as I was getting to know him or as I I was introduced to him that evening. And uh, there were some things that were changed but largely from the night that I wrote it to when the book came out, it was the same. Um, I knew that I wanted this book to be written in a way that was conversational. I knew that there was going to be many ups and downs, even though I was only privy to maybe the big twist when I began writing it. And I wanted this character of Darren to feel like a coach, to feel like a friend, to feel like someone who can say, I know a lot of these things are really wild right now, but trust me, I'm going to be here to let you know that things will work out. Whether it work out for the better or not, I don't know. That's up to you. So the author's note was me setting the stage, the direct address, breaking the fourth wall, um, having his voice be hopefully original, but also energetic um, slightly brash, but not too foreign if you've picked up self-help books or memoirs. And in terms of the structure, I wanted it to feel like a sales manual. I wanted ah, I this that. character to be walking you through his story, the ups and downs, 
being vulnerable, not hiding the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it wasn't until the fourth draft that I began to include those bolded, direct addresses to the reader. It was with the fourth draft that I said, I already have this notion of it being a sales manual. I've already broken the fourth wall in the beginning in this author's note. And the book is structured as though it's from this character, Darren, who's a few years older from when most of it's taking place. Why don't I include these very bolded direct addresses to the reader so that it will read like some of the sales manuals that were given to me when I got into the game, or it'll read like books that I had read in the past, like how to get filthy rich in rising Asia by Mohsen Hamed or a book that I was reading at the time, the residue years by Mitch Les Jackson. So uh, that's how the structure came to be. That's awesome. That's, That's so awesome. And yeah. some, but, but what's so crazy is sometimes an idea like that'll come to us and we'll be like, no, it's too nutty. Yeah. Like, you yeah. have to change yourself as a writer, right? Like yeah. you have to say, That's mm-hmm. not, that probably wasn't in the plot and structure book you read. No, it wasn't. And I, <laughs> and I think, Patty, you know, that brings up a really important point because me having been a big reader, when I was writing Black Buck and like a moderate reader beforehand, but a big reader when I was a kid, you know, we all get distracted and pulled into the world of of professions and this and that. But when I was writing Black Buck, I read dozens and dozens of books and I was consuming film and TV and documentaries and even plays um, with an analytical eye and ear to understand the creative sensibilities of the, of the writers. But because I wasn't so steeped in tradition and, I hadn't been workshopped to death, right, to where that I was afraid to write. The idea of breaking the fourth wall was, that's interesting to me. Maybe it'd be interesting to to the reader. Why not? I didn't think about it too much to the point where I got like uh, analysis paralysis. Well, that's the whole thing about getting out of our own way, right? Like Uh if we overanalyze it, will this work? Did it work in my last book? Will they like it? Will my editor think it's stupid? Like by the time we ask all those questions, we have we've gotten in our own way. And if you had yes. done that, we wouldn't have this astounding book. That's so, right. I also had no editor at the time. I had no readers. No one that's knew what I mean. Like, this, so. It's amazing. Yeah. And um, I, the way you talk, your cadence, your rhythm, your language is so much like your book. That I'm it's with friends. Just, yeah, you were among friends. And it feels that way when you read the book, too. So yeah. please tell us you're working on something else right now. Oh, I am working or it's working on me. I don't know which. (laughs) But yeah, book two is underway. I'm actually in the first round of revisions with my editor. So uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yay. Now now you've got an editor and now you've got readers. That's right. And then as we all know, it's a bit different. Um, More cooks in the kitchen, more people that you have to get out of your mind as you're sitting down in front of the Word doc, right? Um, But yeah, the second book, it is called Invisible Faces, but likely to be renamed. Um, It is about a young, invisible woman in a world in the future, and invisible people are second-class citizens, and her brother had abandoned her three years prior to when the book opens up, but she's moved forward as much as anyone can move forward from a loss, and she has gained an apprenticeship with the biggest inventor in the land. Uh, She had to work very hard for that spot, and she's there, she's learning, she's working with him, and then one day, uh, what we would call the president is announced that he was murdered, and the chief suspect is her brother. So now there is a young political upstart who says, I'm going to be the next president, and we're going to find this invisible within five days before the next elections. Then there's a law enforcement officer whose job is on the line. He says, no, I'm going to find this invisible guy. He's not going to one-up me. And then there's this young woman, 
who a whole world would expect nothing from who says, I'm going to find my brother before time's up. So that's a bit about uh, book two. Oh, my God. What an original idea. I am hooked. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. 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 Mateo, what a joy to have you. Hopefully, we'll all be together in person sometime soon. But thank you for joining us. And congratulations on all your success and for talking to us about the things that matter to you and to your story. And we're honored you came to see us. I'm yeah. grateful for all of you. Thank you so much for your time and what you do and uh, much love. Oh, and thank you out there for being a part of Friends in Fiction. And we can't wait to see you next week right here. Same time, same place. See you then. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.